If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. This is week 3 of our series through the book of Acts called The Mission to Save the World. Uh, our custom here at Capshaw is to work our way through books of the Bible, kind of verse by verse, uh, section by section, uh, keeping the text in the context. But when you come across a story, which is what Acts is, a true story, a, a grand narrative, uh, we don't want to we don't want to parse every verb or every line. We want to let the story, want to take in the story. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is a story that has all the elements of a great drama. It has murder. It has mystery, it has mayhem, it has shipwreck and sea voyages, it has conflict and trials and deserted friends, it has everything you can imagine. Um, but unlike the great stories of mythology, this is actually a true story that has been breathed out by God for our edification. So it's a story about God's, God's grace flooding out to the whole world from Jerusalem, from the cross and resurrection of Jesus to the whole world in the form of the gospel, the good news about God's salvation in Christ. Um, and it's actually the same grace, of course, that God is still pouring out. It's not as though God poured out His grace a long time ago and then stopped doing that. God is still pouring out His grace, uh, and we are recipients of that grace. And we're called to be, as we will continue to see through this book, we are called to be heralds of the good news of God's grace, pra- proclaiming the news of God's grace. And it is, as we're going to see this morning, it is a grace that radically transforms. It is a grace that radically uh, transforms. I hate to admit it, but I'm a bit of a sucker for before and after stories. You know, they, they come to us in all different varieties, uh, from dramatic weight loss to uh, hair restoration to home renovation. These stories are all over the place. Um, I don't typically watch uh, a lot of, or actually any, uh, home, home and Garden Network TV, uh, but if I have any passing through the living room or a room where it's on and I see this incredible transformation, I'll definitely stop and look. I'm, I'm drawn in by these stories of transformation. You, you might see something like this on such a show, picture of an old kitchen, nothing wrong with that kitchen, uh, perhaps we could say a little dated, and then it is transformed into something that looks like this, a whole new look a new sense of energy and vibrancy or whatever it is. Now, here's a different type of uh, uh, before and after I find on my Facebook feed all the time. I've never Googled this, but I see this uh, all the time. Before and after pictures of a, of a bald man. I don't know why the bald man always looks so angry. <laughs> why is he always frowning? The other guy's like smiling, but uh, I see that all the time. And, and, you know, these images of before and after can be very personal. They can be very moving. Here's you before your morning coffee. Uh, you know, maybe not the most pleasant looking. And here you are after your morning coffee, just filled, uh, filled with joy. Uh, here are you and your spouse pre-COVID, before any sort of quarantine. You know, you're just cuddling, you know, just enjoying each other. And then here you are in the COVID era after being cooped up in the house together. Um, again, I have nobody in mind here that I'm thinking of. But, um, uh, but these before and after pictures can be very powerful, especially if the before is a scenario or situation that seems impossible to remedy. In other words, how will, we ever, how will this ever be made right? And then something comes along incredibly, miraculously, that brings about transformation in a way that, that no one ever expected. And that's what we encounter today in the story of Acts. This morning, for the second time in Acts, we have a miracle followed by a message. 
And we're going to see three things as it relates to God's miracles. The objects of God's miracles, the extent of God's miracles, and the trajectory of God's miracles. What are the, what are the miracles that were performed uh, some 2,000 plus years ago? What do they have to do with us? What do they mean for us? So the objects, the extent, and the trajectory of God's miracles. Let's look at the text together. Uh, let me read, uh, start by reading Acts 3, verses 1 through 10. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So we saw uh, in the last part of Acts chapter 2, a, a sermon that Pastor Brandon beautifully covered last week, the section that, that the earliest followers of Jesus, they were called followers of the way, they lived life together. Day after day, verse 46 of chapter 2, they went to the temple together. They enjoyed meals together. They studied the scriptures together. They worshiped God together. They prayed together. They ate meals together. They were constantly together. Now, to contemporize it a little bit, we could say they went to each other's kids' baseball games together and dance recitals. They went for walks together. They went shopping together. They smoked meat together. They hung out together. They worshiped God together. They prayed together. They didn't compartmentalize their lives. In other words, it wasn't as though they kind of went to church on Sunday for an hour and 15 minutes, but then they lived the rest of their lives the way they normally would. They didn't go to church. They were the church. And as members of the church of Jesus Christ, they were constantly together. And then beginning with verse 3, so we have this kind of umbrella phrase, they lived life together. And then beginning with chapter 3, we, we have some four example stories of what they did together. I could say to you, just to illustrate, I could say to you, when my kids were young, we did a lot of things together, all kinds of things together. I'm painting a picture for you of what life was like in my house when my kids were young. We were together a lot. But then I could go on and say, you know, I remember this one time we were driving cross-country. I mentioned our cross-country trips a couple of weeks ago. And we were driving cross-country, and 100 miles into the desert in Utah, we ran out of gas totally out of gas. I had looked at my dashboard and it said, you know, it says that so many miles to empty. It said 100 miles to empty. I thought I would be good, but I actually needed 107 miles because there's a period in, in Utah between Green River, I think all the way to Salina, where it's 107 miles with no gas station. And here we were stranded on the side of the road, no bars on the cell phone and no gas. So I could tell you that we, we were together a lot, but then if I give you a specific story about some sort of uh, incredible event we, we went through, that gives you a better idea. Well, we had this umbrella term this, that, that the, the people of God were together all the time. And now in chapters Acts 3 through 5, 
6, roughly, we have these four example stories. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3, one day, or if you have an ESV, now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So it was a daily rhythm of pious Jewish people to go to the temple at least twice a day to pray, once at 9 a.m. for two prayers. One was called the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So they would go and they would recite that prayer together. There's more to it than that, but that's the beginning of it. And there was another prayer. It was called the Tifilah, which was a Hebrew, uh, it was a sort of a prayer hymn. It had 18 benedictions. And it began with, uh, Blessed, O Lord, art thou, O Holy One, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they would go, and together they would recite these prayers together. And then they would go back at three in the afternoon for what was called the Tamid. And the Tamid was a a prayer accompanied by a uh, a burnt offering. And you say, well, now wait a second, weren't these followers of Jesus? Weren't these Christians? Why would they go to the temple? Well, they were followers of Jesus, but they were Jewish men. And they didn't expect Jesus to come and introduce a new religion. What they expected Jesus to do is fulfill all the law and the prophets. They thought and believed that Jesus had come to redeem Judaism and the Jews. Again, not establish another religion. And so they followed Jesus' example and they went to the temple. On one particular day, they encountered a man who was lame. It doesn't mean he was uncool. It means he couldn't walk. He didn't have the ability to move his legs. He couldn't stand. He couldn't make any progress. He he had to recline, had to sit down and be helped anywhere he would go. So the apostles are on their way to the temple, and uh, they they see this man. And now a person could be rendered lame for any number of reasons in the first century. He He could be rendered lame because of an illness or maybe a disease or perhaps a a medical procedure gone wrong. So there are any number of reasons that a person could, could lose his ability to walk. But this man, we're told, had been lame from birth. So he had no idea of what it was like to walk because he had never before taken a single step. He was over 40 years old at this time, the next chapter of Acts will tell us. And he had no idea. He had, he had never experienced walking. My wife just told me the story the other day. I'd never heard this story before, but... Um, when her mom was two and a half years old, uh, she got glasses for the first time. I don't know how they, they diagnosed this, but they realized that she, she needed glasses very badly, so she went and got glasses. And on her way back from the ophthalmologist with her new glasses on as a, you know, a, a, under a three-year-old girl, she said she realized for the first time that trees had leaves. She, she had never seen that level of detail before. She always just thought they were just kind of green blobs that would sort of fit in with the sky. But she saw that level of detail for the first time. Well, this man had no idea, had no experience walking or moving around in his own power. That's all he knew was helplessness and immobility and so on. He's sitting at the gate. And now, thankfully, he had friends who were willing to take him to the place to to, uh, seek alms. And that just means he's basically begging for money. But the friends would take him to the temple called the, the, the gate called the Beautiful Gate or the Gate Beautiful, which separated the court of the ethne, the court of Gentiles, from the court of the Jews. And there was a steep flight of stairs in order to get to this particular gate. If you've ever seen uh, pictures of the 
first century temple. It's just, just mammoth, huge complex. And so uh, this was a very heavy task that these folks had uh, decided to do, to bring him to a place where he could ask for alms. Now, giving, the giving of alms was a required thing for first century Jewish people. And so this was an ideal location for him. This man would be in a place where people would pass by, they would see him, and they were required by law to, to give alms, to, to give to those who were in need. And so again, he's, he's at a, 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 a good place, he, he's uh, in a place where he's likely going to receive alms from people, where people would come by and they would drop uh, something uh, in front of him. But here's the thing, they, people never looked at such people. They never looked at those who were begging, those who were sitting at the side of the gate. And here come Peter and John, and they do something that no one else would do, something totally unexpected. They ask the man to look at them. Look at us, they say in verse 4. Have you ever been stopped at a, a red light and see somebody walking toward you and they're selling something and, or maybe they're asking for money? And you know, what's, the, what's your natural inclination? It's to look away, isn't it? You, you don't want to make eye contact because if you make eye contact, you know they're going to come to your window. All of a sudden, you're car stereo becomes the most amazing. You're just entranced in it. All you can look at is your stereo. You don't want to look any other direction because you know that you, know, you, may, you may get caught. That's kind of what we do instinctively. Well, it was even worse in the first century because of the theology promoted by the rabbis said that if you were lame, if you were born blind, if you were born with any, quote, defect, and I'm saying things from their vantage point, then that was because of some sin in your life or some sin that your parents had committed. And so you were deemed unclean. Remember when Jesus is walking along a dusty road with the disciples and they encounter a man who was born blind and the disciples naturally, and buying into the uh, rabbinical rhetoric, they, they say, well, who, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? And Jesus said, no, that's not, that's not how it works with God. But there was a teaching that said if you had any sort of ailment like that, then you were a second-class citizen. You were unclean. You were not worthy. And by the way, it may surprise you to hear that there are places in the world today where the people are still treated like this, where people who are born with uh, various challenges who are treated as though they're not worth anything. First century Jerusalem, defiled persons were unwelcome at the temple for worship. Again, this was especially true for beggars, which is what this man was. And so people would walk by him and they would naturally, out of duty, they would put some coins around him or drop some coins in his lap, but they would never look at him. But Peter and John look at the man and they tell him to look at them. And when he looks at them, of course, there's an expression of anticipation. They're thinking, this guy, no one else has asked me to look at him. This guy must have a really, really big gift for me. This guy's just going to make my whole day in terms of alms. And then Peter utters that famous phrase. He said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I do give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And the man stands to his feet for the first time ever. For the first time ever, he takes his first steps. And of course, he can't believe what's happening. He's been by this gate for 40 years. He's stunned. He's so thrilled with the ability to walk that he starts to jump up and down literally. I love what renowned uh, biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce writes. He says, 
Ordinary walking around seemed too humdrum a means of progress. His exaltation must find a more vigorous expression. And so leaping in the air and bounding along, trying to find out all his new limbs were capable of doing, he accompanied the two apostles through the gate into the sacred precincts themselves. So he's walking through the temple, into the temple, jumping up and down, praising God, worshiping. He has been finally seen. Someone has noticed him. And they didn't just notice him. They brought about healing. Now, here's the first point as it relates to the objects of the miracles. The apostles' miracles reveal the breadth of God's saving work. People of all abilities and backgrounds are invited into His story. Now, it's easy for us, and I can speak for myself, it's easy for me to think, you know, there are some types of sins. And maybe it's a sin that we don't struggle with. There are some types of sins, and you know, those, those people... They have no hope. They have no chance. Or maybe it's not a certain type of sin. Maybe it's a pattern of sin. And we look at someone else and we say, well, why why can't they get over that sin? Why do they keep going back to the same sin over and over? Why do they keep falling in the same way? And we think, you know, there's no no hope for them. Or maybe it's not a type of sin or even a pattern of sin. Maybe it's an attitude. It's a stubbornness. That person is too stubborn, too self-reliant, too independent, to ever come to faith in Jesus. Well, as we're going to see through the story of Acts, that God is all about attending to, coming to the aid of those that everybody else has written off, that everybody else has deemed unclean, unworthy, that everybody else has said that person is hopeless. Now look at what happens next, verses 11 through 16. This man's been healed, and while he clung to Peter and John, All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. You see the irony there? Peter's saying to them, you took the life from the giver of life. But he goes on to say, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, verse 16, has made this man strong, whom you see and know And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So these people that that run together to talk about this and, and marvel at this, they had seen that man by the city gate. They'd seen him by the gate beautiful. They knew he couldn't walk. They probably knew his parents. And yet all of a sudden, here he is bounding into the temple area, jumping up and down, praising God. And immediately they attribute this miracle to the power of the apostles. And Peter quickly dispenses that notion. He said, look, why are you staring at us? It's not because we're so powerful or righteous. That has nothing to do with it. The one who made this man whole is the same God that you worship, the God of history. Now, up to that point, things are fine. They're okay with that. But then he goes on in a way that they they would never accept. Peter takes them all the way back to Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs of the Jewish faith, 
Peter says, the God who showed such power through the ages, the God that you and your family have celebrated and worshiped for generations, he did this. Okay, so far, so good. And then he says, only he did so to glorify his son, Jesus, the holy and the righteous one. He did so to glorify the author of life. And Peter drops a bomb on them. He says, whom you killed. Now, every young seminary student, or old seminary student for that matter, learns that when you're preaching a sermon, to take the edge off of it and to actually show the preacher's own humanity, you say, we instead of you. So you don't say, you know, you are such a terrible sinner. You need God's grace. We say, no, we're all sinners. We all need God's grace. We say that because it's true and it also humanizes the preacher. So that everybody's sitting there, no, there's not a guy up there with all the answers. No, we're pointing to the one who has the answers, who is the answer. And so, you know, we, we, you learn in preaching class, you, you don't say you, you say we. But Peter, in his second sermon, he has no interest in that. He says, you denied the Holy One. You killed the author of life. But, he says, verse 15, God raised him from the dead as evidence of God's power over life and death, but also as proof that the miraculous work of God didn't end in the first century, it didn't end in the Old Testament, but still continues today. In fact, the Apostle Paul would kind of comment on this, 1 Corinthians 15, and say that Jesus was raised as the first fruit of all those who would be raised from the dead. So here's our second point as it relates to the extent of the miracles. The God of history is still doing miracles today in the name and to the glory of His Son, Jesus. Now, what do I mean by in the name? This man who had been lame his whole life is healed, we're told in verse 15, by faith in His name, by faith in the name of Jesus. Now, this is important because we, as we continue to go through Acts, we're going to see some incredible, miraculous things that happen in Jesus' name. So what does that mean? Well, it, it, it doesn't mean that by uttering the name Jesus or by the arrangement of the letters or in Hebrews the word Yeshua, it doesn't mean that just by saying the name, we sort of harness God's power and we get what we want. No, the name of Jesus represents the very essence of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the character of Jesus. And I think there are there are two ditches that we can kind of veer off into very easily when we think about this. So I don't want us to be kind of wheels up in a ditch. Let me just tell you what those are. The first one is to believe that by saying the name of Jesus, by uttering it in some specific context, in some particular way, that we sort of harness some magical power to get what we want. My wife who works in the hospital as a nurse said that there's sometimes... A person will come along and, and, and a nurse will maybe, or some will come along and, and this has happened, she's seen this, and a, a professing Christian will say, will put him or his or her hands on a, on a patient and say, in the name of Jesus, I command this virus to leave your body. That's not really understanding what's going on here. So the first ditch is to believe that just by uttering the name Jesus, we, we sort of bend God's arm to get what we want. But the second ditch that we can easily veer off into is to believe that that the miracles of God were just a thing of the past, that God doesn't do miracles anymore, that God doesn't work that way anymore. He doesn't heal people anymore. And the reality is that, that God is, a, is as alive today and as active today as He was then. 
fact, God has always been alive. He wasn't created, so He never started to exist. He has always existed. And He is still doing miraculous things today. In Christ, God is still bringing people to saving faith, drawing people to Himself, overwhelming them with His love, and bringing them to a place of faith. I was at a missions gathering last weekend and heard the story of one man who was a witch doctor in India. By all accounts, the guy who wanted nothing to do with Jesus and hated the name of Jesus. And God crushed him, brought him low so that he could raise him up in repentant faith. God is doing that to people in North Alabama too. Taking self-reliant people who don't even know they need a Savior. People who are resting in their own ability and He's bringing them to a place of brokenness in faith. In Christ, God is reconciling relationships, doing those miracles. I've, I've been with couples before in marriage counseling situations where, where husband and wife hated each other. I remember one specific situation some 20 years ago. They wouldn't even, they sat on opposite ends of the couch in my office. They wouldn't look at each other. They could not stand each other. And God brought them to a place of brokenness. And He restored their relationship, brought them back together. He does it in marriages. He does it in in family relationships. In Christ, God is still reconciling people together. And the greatest miracle of all, God is still forgiving our sins in Jesus Christ. Verse 16 implies that something happens here beyond just what we're told. And a lot of times in the narratives of the Bible, we say that the narrative is collapsed, which means we don't, we're not told every single exchange, every word that was said. God gives us what He wants to give us, but there's obviously other thing that, things that take place. So um, something happened. Uh, apparently, Peter presented the gospel to this man, and he received it because we're told this man had faith in Jesus' name, which we know from the, other, the overall witness of Scripture, particularly the gospels, this goes beyond just a faith in healing. This man believed in who Jesus was. And he's healed not just from his physical malady, but also from spiritual death. He is forgiven. See, Jesus' name brings healing from the inside out, which is actually far more miraculous than restoring someone's physical health. What God does in Christ is He cleanses us from sin. He takes away our sin, which is far more significant than giving someone the ability to walk who's never walked before. And this cleansing, this purging, this cleansing from within, or actually from outside of us, from God Himself, is something that every single one of us needs. Because we enter the world, not as friends of God, not as Christians, no one is ever born a Christian. We enter the world as those who are estranged from God, enemies of God, Paul says, and actually under God's wrath. We need forgiveness above all else. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And elsewhere, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Westminster Shorter Confession sums it up this way. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Because we have sinned against God in following the pattern of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have standing against us, for those who are apart from Christ, we have standing against us an insurmountable moral 
debt. And every time we sin, we pile up higher and higher the debt that we owe God. And without the forgiveness of that debt, nothing in life can be fully enjoyed or truly enjoyed, at least not for the long term. There is no sustained joy or wholeness apart from God's forgiveness in Christ. Think about this. Think about when you, when you have hurt someone and you haven't yet sought their forgiveness. And you know it in the back of your mind and you want to get to it, but until you get to it, until you seek their forgiveness, there's a weight. There's something you just have to get rid of. Take it a step further. Someone you've really wronged badly and you've actually gone to them and you've sought their forgiveness but they won't grant it. They withhold. They say, I, I won't forgive you. I'll never forgive you. Well, there's a weight, there's a burden, and it does impact everything we do because that debt, that debt is always on our minds. There's a reason that when Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, He says, Father, forgive us. He uh, tells us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, imagine how devastating the weight is when the debt is against God, the holy and perfect maker of heaven and earth, your creator, the one in whom there is no darkness, the weight is crushing. It won't allow for lasting joy. It doesn't matter what you have. I was in the television business. I saw this so often. Wealthy, attractive, perfectly fit, sculpted people, they knew something was missing. And when I interviewed people from Barry Larkin to Deion Sanders, Mark McGuire, whoever it was, there was always a sense as I talked with them that there's something that's not quite right. You may have seen, you know, Tom Brady's going to play in the Super Bowl in just a few hours. And a few years ago, he was interviewed. And I, I forget which Super Bowl he had just won, but it was about a week or two after he won the Super Bowl. And he, he said, you know, it's, it's, it's great, but, but I still feel like there's something missing. And that missing thing is forgiveness, the forgiveness of God in Christ. Without it, nothing else can be fully enjoyed, at least for the long term. Every person apart from Christ lives with a crushing debt that is owed to God, a debt that can never be repaid. But Jesus came to provide forgiveness for that debt, the ultimate healing. Jesus died on the cross to free us from our moral debt by paying for it with His own life. So that we who put our faith in His name can experience complete and total forgiveness. Not partial forgiveness. So it's not, it's not forgiveness that lasts for a little while until you sin again. It's not, it's not forgiveness that just lasts until we blow it. No, it's full and complete forgiveness. As that great hymn, It Is Well, says, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. For those who are in Christ, there's nothing that will ever stand between us and God. We don't have to worry about what's next. We don't have to worry what's on the other side of this life. We don't have to worry about condemnation. We don't have to ever live with a nagging sense of guilt. And when there's no guilt, everything is better. 1714, the Puritan author Matthew Henry wrote a little book called The Pleasantness of a Religious Life, Life as Good as It Can Be. Now, you may remember Matthew Henry. He's one of the few people who have written a whole Bible commentary. It's one volume. It's a beautiful work and very, really rich stuff. Um, 
But he wrote a book after that called The Pleasantness of a Religious Life, Life as Good as It Can Be. And by religious life, this is the way the Puritans talked. He, wasn't, he didn't mean religious in the sense that we would think of it. He meant a life in Christ. A life in Christ is a life that it, where everything is enjoyed better. Everything is fuller. Everything is richer. It doesn't mean that it's going to be a life of ease. Of course not. But it's a life that's so much better because we know God's forgiveness and we know not just the gifts, but the giver of the gifts. So he says, food tastes better to the forgiven. Music sounds better to the forgiven. Pleasure is more pleasurable to the forgiven. Skies are more glorious to the forgiven. Laughter is more enriching for the forgiven, because God is our God, and we are His children. There's nothing that stands between us. He knows us, and He delights in us in Christ. And so we can delight in what He has created. If you put your faith in Jesus, this is your story today. There's nothing that will stand between you. There's nothing, there's no condemnation. You belong to God, and He belongs to you. And I believe this is one of the reasons why this man who was born lame gets up and starts jumping up and down and worshiping. I mean, yeah, of course he was thrilled that he could walk for the first time ever, but I believe it's much deeper than that. I believe it was the experience of God's forgiveness, which was a result of his faith in Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus, that leads him to experience a fullness of joy never experienced before to that point. This is the way it is with those who are forgiven, but for those who rebel against God, those who insist on living my way, those who, who trust in their own ability, their own goodness, their own self-reliance, they never experience the relief of that weight of debt. And plus, because of their self-reliance and their delusion, their rejection of God, they remain under the wrath of God. Robert Capon, who writes a lot of good stuff and a lot of stuff I don't agree with, but I love this, what he says. He says, life is a web of trials and temptations, but only one of them can ever be fatal. The temptation to think that it is by further, better, and more aggressive living that we can have life. The truth is the opposite. Life comes as we surrender our own ability as we cling only to the cross work of Jesus, recognizing that I can't go better, I can't be more aggressive, I can't get up earlier, I can't do anything to earn my salvation. It is only received as a gift. Well, we cannot work off our debt to God. We need that debt to be expunged. We need God's forgiveness, especially those who think they don't. Look at verses 17 through 20. And now, brothers, this is Peter still preaching, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to, to miss just how offensive this sermon was. I mean, Peter's talking to the religious elite. He's talking to people who knew the Bible better than we do. They had huge sections of the Bible committed to memory. These were the experts in the law. And Peter says, look, you may have all this memorized. You don't even understand the point. 
you have missed the whole point of it all. You don't even get it. Of course, they would have been outraged. He says, you missed the whole point of the Bible. What he says, and we won't read this whole section, but he says, this Jesus that you crucified, he's the one the whole Bible is about. This Jesus, the author of life that you killed, he's the one the prophets talk about. He is the prophet, he'll say later in the sermon, to come after Moses. He is the greater Moses. He's the servant that Isaiah was talking about. He's the one the Old Testament writings testify about. He is the Lord's anointed. And you, he says, you killed that person. Now, Peter is gracious with them. He says in verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance. But he will make it clear by the end of this section that their ignorance does not excuse them. Ignorance of sin is never an excuse against God. And you probably read there's a, this whole sort of new atheism movement is, has been growing. But there's also a new movement, a growing movement, it's the new agnosticism. And agnostic just means ah is a negative prefix. Gnosis, knowledge, it means I can't know. So there are more and more people saying, you know what, I, I, I just don't want to try to figure it out. I don't know if there's a God. I'm not sure. I, don't, there's, I can't figure this stuff out. I don't know. Well, we're going to see both from Peter's sermon and, of course, throughout the book of Acts that that not know, saying you don't know, ignorance is, is no excuse because his, God's power, glory, and eternality are all evident in creation. We look at the sky, we look at the mountains, we look at the, the sea and the lakes and the trees. God's power and His eternal presence is evident. And the law of God, which is written on our hearts, bears witness to the character of this Creator God so that all men are without excuse. But notice Peter doesn't just say, you are guilty, you are wicked, you killed the author of life. He also says, there's hope for you. There's still hope for you. Turn from your sin and repent. Now, some of you may be thinking, those of you who are New Testament scholars, maybe you're scholars in the Pauline literature, you're thinking, now, wait a second, why didn't Peter say, believe on Jesus? rather than repent. Doesn't the Bible make it clear that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone? Why did did Peter say repent and not believe? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, salvation comes by believing, through faith alone. But what are those who are being saved actually believing? Not just that Jesus was real, not that He was a real living person, not even that He rose from the dead. Not simply that. But He died for my sins, that He was raised again for my justification. So believing, it necessarily means turning from sin and believing on the one who can save me. We might say it a different way, repentance is the fruit of genuine faith. Now this gets so good. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. So he says, repent that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then look at verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So this this concept of restoration, of God restoring all things that, that Peter just references in this sermon, it actually runs throughout the Scripture. That God is a God who is reconciling to Himself the world. That God is restoring 
everything that's been broken. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with, why would that message follow up a miracle? Well, we, we recognize, of course, that we live in a sin-cursed world and sickness and disease and illness and those things plague us. They're unavoidable, but they will not last forever. Jesus will fix once for all everything that is wrong with the world, and the miracles actually point to the restoration that Jesus will bring about. So when a, when a man who's blind receives his sight, that gives us a picture of what it's like in the new world where there is no blindness. When a man who cannot walk runs and jumps and dances and walks, that gives us a picture of what life is like in the new world. So the miracles actually point to the effect of Jesus' work and resurrection. This is why Peter would liken Jesus to the servant of God in Isaiah. He, let me try to summarize it by our, our final point this morning. Um, it, here it is. The, as it relates to the trajectory of the miracles, the miracles of Jesus point us to a time when suffering and sin will be purged from the earth and will no longer haunt God's children. The miracles of Jesus. And you say, well, this isn't a miracle by the apostles. Remember I said a couple weeks ago, everything that's done, these are, these are things that are done by the power of the risen Christ. We, we, we call it the acts of the apostles, but it might better be called the acts of the risen Christ through His disciples. So, so the miracles are always pointing to, they're pointing us ahead to that future glory, that future time when there will be no sickness and there will be no blindness and there will be no COVID. There will be no disease. A few years ago, I got an instant message around 940. I guess that's not around 940, exactly 940 on Saturday evening. And it was from a friend of mine, a guy that I respected a ton, a guy that I loved, had been instrumental in my family's life. He was not only my boy's basketball coach, but also the principal of their school. His name was Matt. And I got this message from him almost 10 o'clock on a Sunday, uh, Saturday evening informing him, informing me that his son had just died at 27 years old. He died from a drug overdose. And of course, you know, Matt is just like, I mean, he's stunned. He, he's in shock. He doesn't know, how do I even begin to process the loss of my son? And I didn't have any words that could take the pain away. I didn't call him that night because it was, again, it was late, and, and I figured he was already sort of inundated with calls. But I did send him a message. And I just said, Matt, I, I, I can't even imagine the pain that you're going through. I can't even fathom it. And I don't have, there's no, there, there's no words that I can give that are going to take the pain away. But there will come a time when God will reverse and God will restore. And I just ended that message by saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. Jesus is going to take everything that's wrong with this world. And in a million ways, He's going to turn it upside down. He's going to restore it. He's going to make it right. And the miracles give us a picture, give us an indication of what that reversal will look like. As believers, we have hope. If you're in physical pain, you, you have real hope this morning. If you're in a, a broken relationship, a difficult marriage, you have real hope. If you are suffering for any reason, you have a reason to be hopeful. And it won't be because a change in politics or better education or even the invention of a new drug. Those things all have limitations. 
It will be because Jesus will one day take your situation, your pain, and your brokenness, and He will bring about full and complete healing. One day Jesus will restore the world so there won't be any sickness. And Jesus shows what that looks like by His miracles. One day Jesus will restore the world so that there is no blindness. There is no spiritual oppression. There is no hatred. And Jesus shows us, He gives us a glimpse of that by virtue of His miracles. What we learn from the miracles is Jesus showing us what one day life will be like for the believer. I like what Philip Yancey writes. The miracles Jesus did perform, breaking as they did the chains and sickness and death, they give us a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instill hope that one day God will right its wrongs. It doesn't mean that what you're going through, that God's going to put an end to it anytime soon. He may. It doesn't mean that God's going to necessarily heal you. He may. But in the end, if you are in Christ, He has something so glorious for you, so incredible and amazing for you, that the Apostle Paul, when he reflected on it, he said, I reckon that the sufferings we're going through now are not even worth comparing to the glory that is in store for us. One day God will right every wrong, and in the meantime, as we await His return, He is still pouring out His grace. He is still performing miracles. And He still can be trusted as the one true, faithful, and only holy God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you help us to believe what we've seen about you this morning in your word? And will you give us the grace to rest in the the finished work of Christ, the, the beauty and power of the gospel, and not our own obedience, not our own ability, not our own grades, not our own performance, not our own driving record, whatever it is we want to cling to as we make us feel good about ourselves, whatever we want to hold up to you and say, God, here it is, accept me. God, will you cleanse us and forgive us and give us the grace to rest in Jesus Christ and his finished work. For you are the Holy One. You are the only one who can give life to the dead. You are the only one who can give sight to the blind. You are the only one who can take lost, wandering, helpless people and bring them by faith to your table where there are pleasures evermore. Father, we praise you for that in Christ's name.